Thank you to our four sponsors for supporting our podcast. Johnny Russell's Art Caterers and Milktown Pies, Alexander Grace Law, Jez and Lisa's Spoonful of Sweets and SPE Furnishings. Links to their websites are available in the show notes and on our website. Don't forget to subscribe to get all the latest episodes as soon as they're released. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to the Housecast, the legendary podcast that has been going now since well, I think we started before Covid and we are getting towards 100 episodes. So this is a bit of a different type of podcast that we're hoping to put together and that everyone will enjoy. I've been chatting to these two guests for a number of weeks, probably months now, around the work that they do away from the cricket club and the research that they do etc they both have been down the cricket club believe it or not even longer than me or blaze um fantastic people do a lot of work over and above what they we're going to talk about now but i'd like to just talk about and go back through the history of the cricket club so the first guest i'd like to introduce is Anne cochran Hello, Anne. Welcome. Hello, Hello Jess. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. No, I really appreciate it. It's taken a little bit of organising to get it together. We're doing this for the benefit of the listeners. We're doing this live, as in we're all in the same room, as opposed to Zoom, which be interesting to see how it comes out and give us some feedback, how people think this sounds, etc. Is it better because we're in the same room? So, Anne, you know, we've known each other for so many years when I first started playing and you knew my mum and dad and everything else that was going on. And Just explain very roughly and briefly about your involvement at the cricket club, when you started coming down, why you came down, what you can remember, just very briefly. Well, I started coming down as a little girl with my dad, Jack, and I think there are some people still who remember Jack because... He was a member here for a long time. He was on the committee for a period of time uh, in the 60s, I think. And I came on as a little girl. I helped in the tea room as a little girl, selling pop. (laughs) I can remember uh, taking the the caps off the fizzy pop in the tea room. And uh, it stems from there. So eventually um, I... My son, Neil Maxwell, who again, some people down here will still remember, yeah, plays, course. played for the uh, the junior teams. He played second 11 and he also made some appearances for the first 11 before he went off to university and, yeah. and he stopped there. Um, and I've just had a, a continuous involvement. I live locally and when I came to retire, um, I was looking for... Um, some something to take my interest and I decided that because I had the knowledge of the cricket club I had some archive that had come from my dad's home when he died and he'd saved that for the cricket club I decided to concentrate on what was on the doorstep right. and look into the law house heritage because for something to be going from 1862 
as a working class institution and still be going is quite an achievement, I think. Uh, yeah, I didn't, re didn't realise that it had come from your dad, a lot of the material that you got. That's really interesting. So there's all that material that your dad's gathered throughout his life, I take? Well, I think he just was the custodian of it because right. um, he lived longer, right, I think, yeah. than the, the other chaps yeah. who were of his generation. Yeah. And he had the, no, the, the sense, because he did like history, yeah. that the stuff was worth preserving. Course, and we don't yeah. have a lot. No. But what we do have is yeah. really interesting, I think. And we have annual general meeting reports going back to 1870-something. And these are all online now. Yeah. That was what I really wanted. Right, okay. I wanted them to be digitised so anybody can look at them. So those are now on the website? They're on our website. Yeah. Um, but they were digitised by the crickethistory.website. Right. Which is an, uh, a, a partnership between the Lancashire League, Nigel at the Lancashire League, yes. and Pete Griffiths at this cricket right. history website and yeah. he's digitized a lot of stuff for the Lancashire League and we sent him all our stuff last year and that's that's been digitized. So people can go and look at it at the leisure etc. Yes, yes. What about if anyone listening to this has any other material that could be useful? Can I take it? You'd yes, be the one we, that would have a look at it? And... Well yes they can get in touch by yeah. the website. Yes, Brilliant, yes. oh that's great, that's uh, fantastic, thanks Anne. I mean it's interesting you mentioned about your dad and about Neil. I remember your dad and, and my dad being down many, yes. many, many times clearing up on Sundays and after the bonfire and everything, you know, some really good memories of people when the times were tough and the cricket wasn't great, that's, you know, they were, they were applying for re-election all the time, but those that's characters, true. along with another probably dozen yes. chaps at that time, kept everything going. And I really appreciate that. Thanks ever so much. Our second guest this afternoon is someone else who's watched cricket for as long as I can remember, always has a keen interest and, and has the old comment to, to, to make on some forums, whether it's in programmes or other mediums over the years, uh, and that's Paul Hargreaves. Uh, hi, Jess. Uh, Hello, yeah. Paul. Thanks very much for coming on. Yeah. Uh, my involvement in Laura started in 1970. I remember the day itself. I can't tell you what month. <laughs> right. I, I've moved to the Rosegrove area. And I came down here with Jeff Wilkinson, who used to, who went on to be a player for Lores uh, in the 70s, and still has an involvement uh, in the club. Um, it was the only time ever I sneaked into the club. <laughs> um, shock horror. Uh, I, uh, I owe them uh, about um, half a crown. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was in the area of where the cottages were, but they'd been pulled down, and it's where the substation was. And... I'd said to Jeff, I said, you know, Jeff, uh, I've enough money to get on, but I haven't enough money for pop and uh, a marathon. <laughs> and uh, he said, solve that, do what I do. And so we jumped the wall. <laughs> and th there was a big enough crowd that you couldn't uh, really, you could hide in the crowd. And um, so we did that. And then Jeff disappeared and I wonder where he'd gone. And then about quarter of an hour later, he's going around selling league handbooks. <laughs> I thought, well, that's, uh, you know, one way of doing it. Uh -huh. Making a profit on the day. Don't yeah. even pay him to come in. So that's 1970. Um, I became a, a member in the middle 80s. But I, I watched Lores all through the 70s. 
became a member in the mid 80s and 1992 I think I became a patron so I've been a patron for 30 years uh, when Mark Whitehead produced programmes for the club uh, probably about 15 years ago I uh, used to write a column as you probably remember Jess I do. sometimes a little bit controversial sometimes <laughs> a little bit critical because it was a semi-independent production and Mark always liked to stir things up a little bit and so sometimes even David Renard sort of get on to me don't quite agree with what you said today he'd say sometimes and I'd say well you know that's the freedom of the press I claim, <laughs> isn't it? Um, and now um, of course we don't produce programs sadly anymore and uh, I've done a fair few articles uh, for your son Adam on yeah. the website you know yeah. um, you were talking about the bad old days watching uh, Laura in my in my experience, the 70s weren't the bad old days because we weren't very good and every win was treasured. We weren't expected to win and it was great listening to some of the away fans if we beat them. We shouldn't be getting beat, will our, uh, will our house? Terrible. You know, and it was so upset that I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And uh, now, in the last, say, 15 years, when we've become a, a strong team and we're expected to win, the defeats hurt, yeah. whereas they never hurt in the past. No. You know, they were expected, and 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 a win's not treasured as much as it used to be. Yeah. You know, so that's uh, really um, my involvement. Really. Yeah. You know. I appreciate that, Paul. And you're right. I mean, you you talked about the 70s. You know, I, I started playing first team in the 80s, and um, we were still weren't so good then. There were a couple of years where we had, you know, with Lofties in pop that we had some good performances but there were a lot of occasions where you know I did find it as a player quite difficult when we were playing certainly Haslingdon, Burnley, East Lanks you know and they would the odd win yeah we would treasure it but they not only beat us they sometimes it was humiliation and sometimes it was you know they weren't very kind to us um, but at least the 1980s were probably better than the 60s 70s I'm sure know, yeah you yeah. know the league positions were starting to yes, improve they were and we didn't stand out as sort of a, a re-election club yeah year. no so no, things were exactly a bit right. better in, in your yeah. early years at the club and then that is possibly because of the junior sections that were created yeah. then from my understanding prior to that it just wasn't the case, no. you know, certainly yeah. in the 70s, 60s and, and back, there was no junior sections, there was yeah. just about a second 11. Um, so thanks very much, Paul. Thanks for, for letting us know about your involvement. The pair of you, I'd like you just to, to explain to the listeners of what you've been pulling together over the last few years, will it be? Well, this been... particular project is, yes. a, is just a fairly recent... Over the winter, we were Yes, okay. yes. I mean, I've... I've used the archive material that we have, and Paul has done a lot from his. Paul has the knowledge in his head. Right, I okay. think I need it on paper. Yeah, so I, I, watch, I watch most of these games. You know, I've uh, yeah. <laughs> I've used the archive material that we have, and a subscription to the British Newspaper Archive, which is a fantastic resource for anybody who wants to look at uh, things that were published about cricket and life anything really. Uh, I've used those to tease out some stories that I thought were interesting and but it's only with the advent of your Adam taking on the website that there was somewhere to feed it into Right. and really Adam's been tremendously supportive and helpful to me yeah. so that I've been doing things 
because I wanted to do them, but he's given me an outlet to put them to a wider public and hope that there might be the odd person who also finds them interesting. And once they're out there, they're out there, aren't they? Exactly. And I can assure you, Anne, there are lots of people who already find it interesting, already enjoy the, you know, reading the articles that go out there. And the beauty of social media these days is, you, as you say, it's a little bit like the podcast, but we stumbled across this. We all had these memories and funny stories and you know cricket games in our mind. And Stan and myself were constantly saying we should write these down because mm. when we're gone, that's right. Those memories, you know, yeah. our kids and their kids telling these daft stories about these old blocks yeah. that you can't remember yes. wouldn't work. So now with podcasts, yes. they're there. And Adam yeah. assures me they're there forever to yeah. listen to. So yours even more. Yes. It's more importantly that all those going back decades uh, are now secure for other people to read long after we've all gone. So it, it's absolutely commendable, Anne, that, you, that the pair of you are putting everything together as you are. So this particular project, how did this come about? Why did you decide to pull this together that you've that you've that you've done over the last twelve months well, or so? I think Anna has um, a big interest in Tommy Short and um, as a person and that era. And my interest is really she twisted my arm to go in. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that's not strictly true. We do. Um, we had an inquiry to the website, which Adam dealt with like he always does in a very open and welcoming manner yeah from a chap who was researching the history of Perthshire Cricket Club okay in Scotland and they'd lost all their archive in a fire in 1913 I think it was because the suffragettes had set a fire to the pavilion so the Perthshire Cricket Club didn't have any archive and he'd found a framed team photo and he was almost sure that it was from 1897 which was the first of Tommy's two years uh, as professional at Perthshire. And okay. if he could just identify Tommy, he could be certain that that was the 1897 team. So we were able to help him with that. We, could, we found a little photo uh, in the local press and sent it to him. And he sent us back the photo. And when he sent us that photo and you can see Tommy Shutt is the only one of the team. This is on the website. People can see this. Tommy's standing slightly to one side of the team photo and we can see him full length. And he's looking at the camera and he just looks like a modern man. He looks like he could step out today and, and turn out. He looks like an athlete. He looks like that as well. He looks like a young athlete, like you say, Full of his own ability, I think. He's got a bit of an attitude on him and he's posed there with it, a bit of a... And he's looking like, come on, let's get on with it. And the rest of the team have the facial hair, they have belts made out of club ties and they look like Victorian men. He doesn't. He looks like a modern man. And that sparked my interest in him because it turned him from a statistic or somebody that Paul had mentioned various times because he was such a good cricketer he turned him into a person so i suggested to ben, i hadn't realized but we had very little on the website actually about him okay so i suggested to paul that we put a proper po profile together he does the cricket and i do the research into the social side of his life right, story right. before 
we move on from that. That is a, a fantastic photo and a story of how you've come about yeah, this. I think if so. I can just explain to the listeners, and it, it might be you might not want to do it now, listeners, but at some stage, please go onto the website and have a look at this photo. It's from 1897, and as Anne says, it's a Perthshire Cricket Club with the professional, which it, you know outlines, explains where he's standing, and talks about the fire and why they want to do why they want to they contacted us and for some help so it's almost a little bit you know it's almost investigative type journalism yes, yes. where you're looking Who do at you think you yeah are? <laughs> exactly yeah can you find this person and yes and so how did you know that was the same tommy shut well we had a photo well we knew well once we start he sparked it off okay so we started looking into it and we knew that Tommy had indeed, well, he knew as well that Tommy had been throwing 1897, 1898. Yes. And um, so I've lost my thread. Yeah. <laughs> what, what it was, uh, if you look at the 1911 handbook, uh, when Tommy was pro at Rishton, yeah. you, you could tell it was the same person. He'd aged a few years, yeah. you know, because it was, um, what, um, 14 years later. Yeah. But the, the guy in Perth, as soon as he saw that picture, he knew that was Tommy Shaw. That was Tommy Shaw. Yes, he, he was able to date it then. So you've put yeah. them together. So we so put them together. That, and that that then was the, the catalyst for doing a proper profile of, of Tommy Shaw, who was a lower house man. He was a lower house amateur, became a professional, and we looked at his life story. And that's... Mm became the project so that's Brilliant. what we've and, and we'd also like to thank Nigel Stockley because of all the yeah. work he's done in sort of collating all the Lancashire League yeah. um, details um, that we could sort of look at almost every well every game he played yeah and and, and um, you know just tell how good a player he was yeah, yeah and that's what's yeah, reiterating that Nigel's work you know helps us all with the podcast with all the history etc uh, etc et so when that's come in Obviously, we all know Thomas Shutt is the leading uh, wicket-taker at Low House. You knew that as well at the time, obviously, well, in liaison with Paul. That's where Paul came in. So you've got this photograph. Adam's done what he's done to dig things out. And then it's over to Paul, really, is it? For, well, Paul, for, for Paul, looked, cricket side. Paul did the cricket side, yes. yes. So what did you find out there, Paul? What did you start to research once at Perth? Uh, yeah, I just looked year by year on Tommy's career. Okay. Um, it starts in 1893. Um, it, it, he just plays an of games. Doesn't bowl. It's from round here, though. Oh, yeah. He, 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 he lived on Lower House Farm. Yeah, yeah. Not where Blaise is. The back-to-back houses that were pulled down, uh, which are where the green little green area is now. At the back of where Blaise is? No, no, no. At the front. Oh, the front? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Right, okay, yeah, uh, Paul's showing me a photograph of, which I think, you know, we've seen quite often on the website of the houses which are in front of the area. So that's where Tommy was born? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's where he was born. And this sort of back-to-back houses, not very, um, in, you know, some of the poorest houses in the lower house. Yeah. I mean, nearly all the lower house houses have survived, except for those, really, and I in Low Water Street, which are just above the lodge. Right. And okay. they were back-to-back houses, and back-to-back houses in Burnley were looked down upon by the 1960s. And right. uh, it was decided that they'd all be pulled down. So they were pulled down in the 1960s. Right. Uh, so okay. he was born in 1875? He was born in 1875, yeah. yeah. Um, 1894, he gets a little bit of a chance. Um, he he bowls only 30-odd overs in the year. 
But he gets 14 wickets. So this is, he's playing for Law House. He's playing for Law House. In the first team. He's 19 years old by then. He's okay. playing in the first team. He, he plays uh, probably about 20 games. He doesn't have a big involvement because of the two pro system. Uh, there's two pros at each club. And the profile of these pros are, first of all, bowlers. If they can bat, it's a bonus. Right. People wanted value for money on these poor batting tracks. Yeah. The bowlers could bowl almost all day. Yeah. And so it limited the chances of amateurs. And uh, so Tommy, he bowls 30-odd overs. He gets 14 wickets at 11, very respectable. And then a crucial decision goes Tommy's way. Over the winter, they decide, and it's rare at the time, to get an all-rounder as one of the pros for next season. And they get a chap called A.E. Berry. And he's more of a batter than a bowler. And he, uh, he gets over 600 runs, which is very, very good at that time of year. But he becomes the third bowler in the team, and Tommy becomes the second bowler. Okay. And he gets 55 wickets, uh, and his strike rate and average are better than the pros, who bowls a few more overs and gets 62 wickets. So he's almost a pro-quality player by now. He's has sort of meteoric rise. Uh, from He's a 1994, Tommy Shutt is a nobody, really. In 1895, he's a somebody. And he's 20 then. He's 20. 20 yeah. he, okay. He's he's still um, work in progress as a batter, but he gets his maiden half century at Accrington. Right. And Lancashire seconds give him a game as well. Right. So he's come from not quite a James Anderson type rise, but not far <laughs> off in a way. Right. Yeah. And then um, 1895, um, he, he fits the profile of what a pro's about, and so he gets offered terms with uh, Staley Bridge Staley Cricket Bridge, Club yes, for, the uh, for the 1896 season, and that begins his uh, his journey into being a pro, which I think he was a pro for seven consecutive seasons then. Um, at Staley Bridge, uh, they um, are um, a team that don't play in a league at that stage. They eventually, about two or three years later, they joined the Central Lancashire League. But when Tommy played, they played sort of local friendlies against teams like Denton, uh, Alderley Edge, that type of thing. And Tommy does quite well. And then, from out of nowhere, 1897, he's in Perth, at Perthshire Cricket Club, who played on the North Inch uh, in Perth, which is an area of parkland um, on one side of Perth. There's the North Inch and the South Inch. And... uh, the cricket club that Tommy played for were on the North Inch, and he has um, a great year there. He, his batting's come on. He's uh, now 22 years old. He sets a club record there of 164 uh, runs against Watsonians. And um, over the two years at Perth, he gets 154 wickets. He's a very popular pro, and uh, they have a benefit for him, and that raises 61 pounds. And £61, I worked it out roughly at about £120 then was is worth about £125 now. Mm. And so he had the equivalent of £7,000 to take home with. Yeah. So three years after working as a weaver, in the, as a young weaver in the mill, he's coming on with the equivalent of £7,000 when Perth don't re-engage him for the, uh, 1890, uh, the 1899 season. I mean... I'm sure you won't be able to answer this, but so he's gone to play 
cricket in Scotland is a professional, what would they have been paying him then? Uh, yeah, uh, we, we, we do well, know that. It was, about yes. four, it was about £4 a week, wasn't it? Well, he, Richard Miller has, um, has looked into how much he was paid. So it says Tommy received £4 a week, which was about £500 now, yeah. working on yeah. that. That's the sort yeah. of accepted, that's buying power, I think. It's okay. What yeah. you could have bought yeah. with £4, you could yes. buy for £500 now. Uh, and that benefit game raised £61. So he had the equivalent of something like £7,000 to come home with. But those terms were better than playing a county, being a county pro, because he had everything all found. County pros had to pay their own expenses and yeah. blah, blah, okay. blah. Um, so if you think that somebody, a working man, would probably get about a pound a week, yeah. mm-hmm. that's... That's a, That's a lot of money, and he did yeah. that two years running there yeah. in Perth. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it was a, it's a prestigious club. That club, it was. Yeah. It, it's had a, a, some fabulous players. It's surprising how popular. Uh, it was a surprise to me, really. I knew that cricket in the Scottish borders is very strong. Yeah. Because I've I've travelled a little bit in the borders. I've seen clubs like Kelso and Selkirk and that. And the facilities are excellent. They're better yeah. better than ours. Yeah. And and that surprises you think because you think a lot of Scotsmen look down on cricket, don't they? Yeah, yeah. It's it, not an English an... toffs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as far north as Perth, though, it was very popular. And he talked about crowds of you know eight, ten yeah, thousand got... for the especially for the local derbies. Yeah. When yeah. they were playing like a, a local team and there was a lot of pride at stake. Yeah, yeah. And um, you yeah. know, so it's. Um, it just shows how uh, he'd come on in those three well, years to, to be involved in, in that kind of cricket. Like. I think it was a brave move oh, to go from being mm. born on Laura's Fold and being a weaver and playing and within just three initially years. Within to, three years he was just well. going to Staleybridge, just yeah. thinking that I can yeah. do this yeah. at Staleybridge. Yeah. He possibly would have, well, he would he'd have probably, carried on working He probably as well. never left the village except no. for a game of cricket. Yes, and then yeah. suddenly... Yeah. He's given this opportunity and and he's got the guts to take it. Yeah, he's yeah. got the self confidence, which I think comes out in that photo. It does. I with think that, he looks. All, yeah. He looks like a cricketer, doesn't he? It, I think. It yeah. is. It's worth again. You know, the, the, if the listeners go, it almost, it almost looks photoshopped. Yes. The way it is, you know, like it looks. He could, he could be playing now. They put him on. Yeah. They? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yes. So in eighteen ninety. That's Eight. 1898, yes. Yeah, so 1899, let's yeah, uh, Tommy go there. Yeah, he came back to Laura S as right. a professional. It was the last year of the two-pro system, and he was the second professional to Ben Gregory. Ben Gregory was a Nottinghamshire uh, bowler who'd started at Laura S the year before, 1898. And he was primarily a bowler, but a very good bowler. And I think... Amongst Laura's pros, he's the second on the list. Only Billy Cook slightly ahead of him. He took 352 wickets over four seasons. But in the 1899 season, Tommy uh, gets 81 wickets and scores 362 runs. Gregory, 72 wickets and 153 runs. Mm. So what we agonised about was whether Tommy was offered to be the sole pro for the 1900 season. And we, we don't really know that, do we? No. But they kept Ben Gregory on. And to be fair, I think um, he did have that 72 wickets in 1899 was probably his poorest of his four seasons. Right. Uh, and, and Ben Gregory stays on for two more seasons. 
And Tommy goes back to Scotland, uh, Anne. Yeah, he goes to Hike, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. in the Scottish borders. Yeah. Uh, so he's got his contacts up there, and it's no different yes. than now. No. Yeah, but it's a, a long way from player. Perth, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so we're not sure about the contacts thing, because we, we don't know where the contacts worked on Staley Bridge to Perthshire, which yeah. is about so, nearly 300 miles. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think sometimes we, we underestimate how in touch people were. Exactly. I mean, the newspapers all syndicated reports, so the reports from Burnagame, Matches yeah. in Lancashire would be yeah. reported in Scotland, yeah. and and, uh, and also if a club wanted a professional, they put an advert in the paper. Yeah. So uh, yeah. you could have responded. Yeah. Or you could reply with your CV yeah, and what you've yeah. done, and so, then they could research you yeah. fairly easily. And also, so once, and if they knew him, they would have known what he did at Perth. So that is what. Yeah. And the cricket world is. It's, it's a different. small world. It is. It's it? different from a lot mm. of other people. Certainly, good cricketers will talk, will meet, and they will. Even then, and they still do it now, talk about an individual who is only, what now, 23? Uh, yeah, uh, he's, uh, well, he's, he's nearly 25 when he goes uh, to uh, Hike. Okay, so he's still very young in his career. Mm. Lancashire have had a look, but he's, he doesn't well, look he, like he's going to... Yeah. He's played one or two um, extra games, I think, in 1897 for the second team, but he never got beyond the second team. Yeah. We think... Perhaps that he, he had the year with Law House, hoping that he was going to get on yeah. to Lancashire. And when that yeah. didn't materialise, then he possibly the hike offer was more lucrative. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what happened that year then? So how did he go on up in? Uh, yeah, um, he um, he does okay. Uh, he gets uh, 64 wickets at an excellent average. As you'd appreciate this, uh, under six. Oh, okay. but. Um, He's playing for a relatively poor team, and we think that some of the teams in the league had financial problems because some of the teams couldn't afford uh, professionals. And and I think there's sort of like a gentleman's agreement that if you were playing a team that only had amateurs, you'd drop your professional. And so he doesn't play all the games, no, does he? No. And, uh, and, and that must have been a bit uh, disappointing for him, really. So he just has that one year... At uh, Hike, and we, we, do we think that Hike couldn't afford to pay him for? Uh, they couldn't. They couldn't afford, have paid any pro. They couldn't. For 1901. No, they didn't have a pro. Again. So yeah. they went without a pro. So then he comes back and plays in the uh, Liverpool competition for two years. Yeah. So funnily enough, he the club he plays for, Northern, that's where Steve Stephen Parry came. Northern, yeah. 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 That's right, uh, yeah. They played then at Waterloo Park in Sefton, and it was only. Um, after Tommy left, about five years later, they moved to uh, Moor Park in Crosby, where I think they still are today. Right. And obviously where Stephen Parry emerged uh, yeah. in the uh, early part of this century. So two years at, in the Liverpool yeah, Park and, uh, Northern. Yeah, he gets, um, they, they, again, not a, the greatest uh, club. They, they, they finished towards the bottom um, in his first season, but he gets 50 wickets at under nine, so he's doing his job pretty well. And then he gets 48 wickets at 12, not quite as good, um, in 1902. And it's at that time, that, that's his last pro job for about um, eight or nine years. Because, um, like you, Jez, he joins the Burnley Police. Yes. Really? I yes. didn't know that. And, uh, yes, he, he, he joins, he, he was playing a, a few games for the police in, in 1902, as well as playing for Northern. He was playing some midweek games for yeah. Burnley Police. Uh, so he, he joined the police force in the end of 1902, I think. But also he gets married 
1903, I think it is. 19, yeah, 1903. So I think that is the deciding factor there. He's, he settles down. Yeah, and, no going back to Scotland from and here. He, he's, yeah, so the police force gives him a secure job. Yeah. And uh, he gets married and... Um, yeah, he doesn't play any uh, league cricket at all in all three, does he? Uh, he just plays for the uh, He just the plays police. for the police. The police. Well, uh, ah, okay. the, the thing with with that appointment or that taking that job in the police force, I think he may have been tapped up a little because the chief constable was obviously very sports-minded. So he spent a lot of time in the police force. He was responsible for organising the sports day. He, he um, was part of the police swimming gala and he played cricket the chief constable also played cricket so he played cricket in the same team as the chief constable against other the, the chief constable set up a league with other yeah. other town teams and yeah. um, and I think that probably helped his police career and that, that might have been why he ended up going to Burnley the chief constable yeah. might have said to him he so he, he transferred from Law House to Burnley for one season didn't he yeah. Yeah. 1904 I think that is yeah. and and I, I personally think that's because the chief constable wanted him to. So. <laughs> well, I, I, from we could get Stanley who's out, out on the field and he's uh, with his top off in the sun. We could get Stanley because I can assure you. No, we don't. Not in such an enclosing. I can assure you it did happen in even in the 1990s, uh, where people got posted to certain areas to play for certain police teams, but not at weekends. It was. It was generally midweek. So yes. when he's gone to Burnley, he's gone there as an amateur, has he? Yeah, he's gone as an amateur for right. one year. Um, obviously, people in Lower House weren't particularly happy about it because, I mean, there's a lot of players play for have played for Burnley and Lower House, uh, a long list of them, but nobody as entrenched in the village as Tommy Shutt, who, yeah. who could sling a cricket ball onto the field from yeah. where he was brought up. Yeah. yeah. And so it did cause a little bit of consternation, uh, but it was only for one year. And uh, he had a, a relatively uh, quiet year, except for two games against Rottenstall. He gets 38 wickets on uh, on the season. Doesn't oh, They don't overball him. His best performance is very early on, a 7 for 15 um, against Enfield. But he gets just over uh, 500 runs, which is very respectable in those days for an amateur. Still is nowadays right, for an yeah, amateur, especially yeah. somebody who's primarily a bolt. Yeah, and on those wickets. Uh, but the, the, there is a two weird games against Rottenstall. He gets just over 500 runs, but he gets 284 in two games against Rottenstall. Right. Uh, he gets 164 at, um, at the Wordswick Memorial Ground and 120 in the reverse fixture. And we think that is an amateur record to get uh, 284 in one season against one club. <laughs> and before you think, well, 164 at Rottenstall doesn't really count. I mean, there, were, there, there were no six hits in those days. Yeah. So he could hit it as far as Clough Fold or Walter yeah, Foot, yeah. and he was only going to get a four. Only going to get a four, yeah. Um, and he get, and you think, well, it might have been a belting track. He gets 164 out of 227. Yeah. Right. And so Rottenstall come into bat, only 25 all out. So it couldn't <laughs> have been that good a track. <laughs> so out of 252 runs scored in that game in 1904, he scores 164 of them, which is a hell of a percentage. And I bet you've rarely seen that, Jez, where somebody gets such a big percentage of uh, both teams' totals. Yeah. No, it's I, amazing, no, isn't it? It is, yeah. And, and his bowling figures, did he... 
Uh, well, he got 38 wickets on the season for Burnley. No, sorry, in that game against oh, Rottenstall. Uh, I don't think he bowled. Right, okay. I don't think he bowled in either game against Rottenstall. He didn't need to. Uh, he didn't really <laughs> need to, no. And the, the only twice in uh, Lancashire League history that we've found where somebody got more than 284 runs in a season are in 1951, the great Australian Bill Alley got uh, just over 300 for Colne against Baker. 250 plus scores and the record is held by some of you who I'm sure you have a, a lot of banter with uh, over the years Jez uh, a certain Australian called Peter Sleep yeah I did yeah, uh, yeah, yeah uh, he, 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 he weren't shy uh, no he wasn't as, you know, yeah. and you could no, he was a good player yeah so. but one thing about him you could eat uh, you could hear the chat from the boundary yes. so he, he didn't yeah, hide yeah. what he was saying no I didn't, no, uh, didn't and Peter I think in 1990 gets um 150 and 170 for uh, Rishton against Church. Right. So. So that probably eclipses. Uh, that that eclipses Tommy uh, Tommy's score. Uh, th- those two, but they were done by professionals. professionals Tommy yeah. did it in an amateur capacity at Burnley. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So we mentioned the sports loving chief constable. Yeah. So um, eventually the uh, watch committee were in charge of the police decided that. Um, the police should really be concentrating on fighting crime instead of having all this fun. Right. And they started to uh, start an investigation into the chief constable. So he resigned before he was pushed in 1905. And the watch committee disbanded the police team and took the uh, instruments back off the police brass band, which the chief constable had also <laughs> also found. Brilliant. Um, they did have police teams later on, but yeah. for a while they didn't. Right. Um, and then, uh, not long after that, Tommy left the force in 1905. I wonder if they uh, found that there was a correlation between the police cricket games and crime in the area. Uh, they definitely did. <laughs> I, I think they definitely it did. Was, it was yeah, the time to they, commit crimes. Yeah, well, yeah, the game is on it. So then so he came back, didn't so he? So he finished, he, he was only in the police a couple of years then? He was in from 1905. He comes back to Lorais. He's still a policeman when he comes back to Lorais. In 1905, he plays out. He's back at Lorais, but not playing all the time. No, because he's still in the police. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, he has a quietish year again uh, on the bowling, but only 36 wickets. But the highlight is he gets uh, 173 not out at Bentgate against Aslindon in a convincing ice win. Uh, again, no six hits are awarded. And unlike his Burnley record, which just lasted two years, because um, an ex-Lorace player called Henry Cudworth beats it and gets 166, um, Tommy's 173 lasted until Ben beat it. Yeah, correct. Ben yeah. Eep, uh, in 2018, 18, when he got yeah. 175. Yeah. When uh, he snicked uh, one in the first over. that. Uh, the, Allegedly. Well, allegedly, but I think everybody heard it except the umpire. But anyway, um, Ben did obviously pass it, but he, he got um, a lot of sixes that day. So, yeah. I mean, us uh, who go back a long way tend to think Tommy has the uh, the moral record, like really. But. Um, and so that's his, his highlight in 05. Um, and then he has uh, another five years now at um, at Lorais, 
And in that time, he, he, he leaves, doesn't he? Uh, sorry, he leaves the place and becomes uh, yeah, landlord take, at the cricketers. Yeah, we, he takes on the cricketers' arms, which uh, I don't know if you remember that. Be, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's demolished now. Isn't there's, it? A yeah, there's a house there. There's a house there. 108 Lorice Lane, it is. The, yeah. There's a house exactly where the cricketers was. Yeah. Um, it, it got pulled down in. Uh, 1985. Yeah, I do. I do remember it. Yeah, I think very small pub. That's right. Yeah, stand you know, up. About the same much. sort yeah. of size as the Red House. Uh, yeah. In Rosegrove, only perhaps smaller than that. Yeah. Even. Yeah. So I was there till about 1910, I think. Um, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So 06 to um, 1910 was a, a sort of mini golden age for Lower House. Before 06, from 1892. To 05, 1905. They're uh, always in the bottom two or three, often bottom. And then they suddenly emerge and have six consecutive top half finishes. And if you're looking Lancashire League history, it was Lorais's best run in the whole century because they were a very consistent team. They had some really good players uh, Jay Elliott, uh, Joseph Cook, who was the record run scorer up until the Second World War, he got nearly 5,000 runs. Uh, Matt Walker, who I think was related to Stan. He's the granddad, was it? Yeah, granddad. great granddad. He's granddad. granddad. And uh, Billy and Tommy Whitaker, who weren't related, but were good all-rounders for the club. And on the Hall of Fame list, uh, they were on for batting and bowling. Lorais had a really strong team. Mm. Um, they would have been an excellent team if the Worsley Cup would have existed and the current restrictions on bowling would have been there. But they were always vulnerable against teams that had a, a really good pro and just one strong amateur. Yeah. Uh, like Burnley. I mean, 1906-08, Burnley won an attrick of championships. They had a, Billy Cook was a young uh, fast bowler in those days who was getting over 100 wickets a season. Yeah. And they had good amateur bowling to back them up. And, and they were could just about outdo us. But we were getting sort of, I think we had two fourth-place finishers. And Lorais's highlight was the second place in 1910, uh, when we were just behind Rishton. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, just behind Colne. Colne yeah. were the champions that year. And uh, Lorais was second, and that was the club's best finish until 1982. Yeah. And uh, Tommy gets the... Um, in 1907, he gets 74 wickets which is uh, a club record, and he beats his own record in 1910. And the publicity of that, we think, got, got him a pro's job at Rishton. Right. He's obviously a family man now. He's had a, He only has one son, yeah. but he doesn't want to travel too far. And so Rish, being Rishton pro is ideal for him. Yeah. And, um, so what year was he the pro at Rishton? He was pro at Rishton for one year in 1911. OK. And I was just looking at the, um, some figures... He's 76 wickets at Lorais, which is still a club record. Yeah. Even you managed to beat that, No, Jess. no, I never got over <laughs> 60. And um, we're taking in 1,564 balls. Now, Rishton really worked him hard. They made him earn his money. And he got 82 wickets, which was his best ever season. But it took him 2,367 balls to yeah. get those. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, an highlight for Tommy that year was uh, ret on returning to Law House uh, as professional. He uh, scored his only century for Richton at Law right. House. Right. Yeah. yeah, against Law House. Right. Against Law House, yeah. yeah. All these wickets here. Yeah, right. so 
Um, but Rishton didn't keep him on. Um, um, he'd had a, a good season, but I think they thought they could do a little bit better. And they had a good amateur side at that time, Rishton. And so they uh, signed um, uh, a player called John Newstead, who's a Yorkshireman. And he went on to get about 300 runs more than Tommy. And he also took uh, almost 100 wickets. And that helped Richardson to be champions in 1912. Yeah, you'd think so with that. Um, and so Tommy has his last pro engagement uh, in 1912. And it's his only uh, season in the Ribblesdale League. He moves very locally to Reed Cricket right. Club. Yeah, I mean, um, the census of 1911 has him as a weaver. Right. None of the censuses uh, have him as a professional cricketer. He's always been a worker as well. Yeah. yeah. Probably. Yeah, so he's not a full-time... So he's, he's never declared that he was yeah. a professional cricketer. Yeah. Censuses are only every 10 years, obviously. Yes. But in 1911, he was he was a weaver. Was was he a weaver in the 1901 census? Yes. Yeah. And yes. Do we think that, obviously, he's playing, he's playing for the Northern Club at Crosby. Do we think he worked at least part-time... I, local, I think he must have yeah, done. Yeah, I think to he, supplement his income. Yeah, yeah. He, he must have just been a Saturday pro, I think, yeah, at right. Liverpool. Um, yeah, so then he, he's, he's getting on a bit by now, isn't he, Paul? Uh, he, he comes, yeah, he comes uh, back to Lower House. Yeah, he stays uh, at Lower House. Uh, yeah, well, uh, he spends a, a season at Reed. Um, After that, he comes um, back. And, yeah, um, and he has some good performances at Reed, but he's, he's 37 by now. Um just wrote one or two of his performances down. Uh, he got, um, against Burnley St Andrews, uh, he got a 67 in one game, and in the re- reverse fixture, he gets a 6 for 83. And Burnley St Andrews, um, uh, who are still known as uh, St Andrews Cricket and Bowling Club, were one of the top uh, Ribblesdale League clubs in that era. I didn't, I didn't yeah, yeah, I didn't they know they won that. the championship. Uh, they won the championship in 1912 for the fourth, th- fourth time in the Ribblesdale Senior League. Uh, but that was the highlight of uh, for them. By the 1920s, they were in sort of trouble on and off the field. They were mostly bottom, sometimes second from bottom. And the club were having financial problems. And I think they resigned for the from the league in... 1927 and never to return. And do you think that's Burnley St Andrews as in the up on Eastern Avenue? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The that's where they played, yeah. That's right. where they played the role. Yeah, they were in the Ribblesdale League. They were in the big, senior, senior yeah, division. They were yeah. a big, Four uh, times champions of right. the senior, senior, senior league. Because yeah. that was still a, a good, decent cricket yeah. ground yeah. when I was at school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah I, they used to play schoolboys cricket. Yeah. When yeah. I played for the town team at yeah. cricket uh, at uh, 15, 16, that's where, that was our yes, own team. Yeah. We, never, we never got to play on Burnley or Lower Ace. No, no. No. Um, and it was, it was a decent cricket yeah, ground. Yeah. It was a reasonable size, yeah. Yeah. certainly for uh, schoolboy yeah. cricket. Yeah. So 1913... He returns to Lower Ace, and, back to Lower and Ace. that's for good. He, he doesn't play for any other clubs uh, then. Um, yeah. yeah, he has a, uh, a good first year, 1913. He takes 63 wickets, and as often he did, he, he outbowls the pro. Uh, he gets more wickets than the pro. And then 1914, a, a drop-off, 39 wickets, which a uh, uh, quiet season for him. And he has a poor season batting, really. His batting has probably passed his best by then. And he gets uh, he doesn't get a score above 30. And Laura House, from... 
1911, the first season he's left them, they finished fifth. They have a really good season. And they only won um, win below the eventual champions that year. But unfortunately, 1912 onwards, it reverts to the same old Lores from mm. before 1906. And they finished rock bottom in 1912, even though the, the first test player to ever play for Lores plays that day, a, a Yorkshireman called Walter Lees, who's uh, played about five or six test matches. He doesn't have a bad year himself, but they just have a disastrous year. And they're back at rock, rock bottom in 1914, right. when, the year of the outbreak of the war. Um, the league sort of carries on without professionals in 15 and 16. And Tommy, um, I think he only took 20, 20 wickets in 1915. Um, and 1916, he takes somewhere in the 40s, which given the weakness of the uh, the league with no pros so many good amateurs at war yeah it, it, it's I've called it an half-hearted effort by Tommy really um, I'm sure if he'd have sort of put his mind to it he could have uh, got more than that because you, we see after the war there is still quite a good player certainly um, for a few years after the um, Second World War, even though he's getting to his mid forties, by the yeah. I was just going to say that, Paul. You're he, saying half-hearted. The lad's forty. <laughs> yeah. he's, no, he's, well, he's, he's bowled himself to the well, grind for a number of years. Exactly. I, I agree with you there, Jez. But if you will come on to what he did after the war. Yeah. Okay. And then you, you might sort of see my point yeah, of view. Okay. So, okay. so we, we don't know the circumstances. No, no. Uh, we don't know what he was. He, he would have been working still as a weaver um people were restricted in the hours he he may have had to work longer than um he was normally doing because everybody was very regulated as to what they i'm convinced though that the tommy shut that we'll see just after the war if he'd have set his mind to it could have outdone his his own record and i'll tell you why no no i'm not (laughs) if you look at it the low race bowling record should have gone in 1916, but right. not to Tommy Shaw. It should have gone to Billy Whittaker, right. who died later on in the war. He, he, uh, uh, Billy was about 38 years old, and he, he wasn't uh, conscripted or anything because no, of his age, but he later joined up. But in 1916, Billy Whittaker takes 71 wickets with five games to go right. because of the weakness of the, the, the competition. Yeah. And... Um, he um, sort of goes off to enlist uh, in late July because we, we've had the bottle of the Sam, Sam and it's been a disaster, uh, really, in terms of the lives lost. Yeah. And sort of they're asking people in, into their early 40s to, to join up and Billy, he sort of goes and joins up. If he'd have played the last five games, he'd have probably got about 90 wickets. And what year is that? 16? That's 1916. That's... Uh, 1916, yeah, and that was the last year of cricket during the war because it was decided then to suspend the Lancashire League. Okay. There's a lot of cricket records, bowling records, by amateurs set during the First World War, and especially in 1916. Um, some clubs recognise them, some don't. Um, I mean, I remember a friend of mine, Trevor Jones, beating the Burnley record and getting 72 wickets. Mm. But in 1916, John Bracewell gets 90 wickets for Burnley. 
Right. And Burnley never recognised that as a record. Yeah. No. But because of the weakness. Yeah. Yeah. But Accrington and two other clubs, I think, still have the 1916 figures. Right. And they've never been beaten and right. probably never will yeah. be, obviously, under the current restrictions. Yeah. They won't be. No. And no. Um, so that takes us to 1919, don't, uh, doesn't it? You know, when the Lancashire League returns and so does Tommy. So mm. 1918... Uh, yeah, no cricket in There's 1918. No there was one or two friendly games, yeah. wasn't there? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but very, f- you know, very uh, little cricket. Okay. Yes. So okay, and so we go to 1919. Yeah, even in 1919, there were still people were coming back in dribs and drabs as well, weren't they? From, yeah. From service. And but there was a full. I think there was a full. There was like a full. Usually there was a full season. But 1920s probably when it yeah. really gets going. Yeah. 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 Right. So. Tommy comes back in 1919, he takes 45 wickets, and he's uh, by now he's 44 years old, and he he's still getting some scores with the bats, he gets 63 at home to Aslinden, and two 40s, uh, 40 odds against East Lancashire, and 49 not out against Bacon. Now this is where uh, it'll, your mind might boggle a bit, Jeff. 1920, okay. he's bowling in tandem with uh, Billy Cook, and Billy Cook can still bowl uh, well, because um, in 1921 he went down to get 130 wickets for Lawrence, yeah. which is uh, a club record, yeah. and it's 18 higher than anybody's ever got. But Tommy, in 1920, 45 years old, gets 68 wickets. And he's 45. He's 45, and it's his best. It's his best really um, for Lawrence since the um, record-breaking season of 1910. And um, he um, he has a really good day at Enfield, where he gets his highest score of the season, 67 runs, and uh, he gets a four for four for 38. And we mentioned here that he bats, um, uh, sorry, he doesn't bat in tandem, but a, a young Enf- Enfield player that day was Eddie Painter. Right. Who went on to become a legendary English Test player in the 1930s, and uh, Eddie uh, was 27 years Tommy's junior, and we were just in, he must have been really impressed with uh, Tommy's performance at 45 years of age, getting yeah. 67 and yeah. four for 38, and of course uh, Eddie Painter's um, averaged over 60 for England in about the 20 odd Tests he played and. He's particularly remembered in the Bodyline series because he was uh, ill in bed and he insisted on returning to the wicket uh, at Brisbane in the uh, roasty hot weather. Mm. So that is so he's 45 years of age. Yeah, and I think Anne probably wants to mention the benefit match that he was uh, allocated. 68 wickets that year. So that is his 1920 and his benefit game. Yeah, so yeah, the. The league would, you had to get league permission to give someone a benefit, but they were allocated to players who'd really given a lot of service to a club. So um, he'd done uh, 17 years with Lower House, I think mm. it was. So they gave him a benefit game and, of course, it rained. Um, <laughs> and and what years was that? That was 1920. They had sold some tickets, haven't they? Yeah, uh, it was 17th of July, 1920. But the report where it urges people to turn out for him says that he was universally popular. Yeah. So I think that's quite 
yeah. quite a thing that is, um, yeah. people are always popular when they die, but when they when they're yeah. still alive, if, if, if a newspaper says that yeah, somebody's you, they, they were liked wherever yeah. they played, yeah. then yeah. Uh, I think it does give you a clue yeah. as to the mm. fact that he wasn't just. Um, a good cricketer, he, he, he was a popular chap as I'm well. I'm sure, sure some of these Conservative MPs who were having a go at Bar- Boris Johnson, if Boris dies today, they, they would say what a jolly good chap he was. I'm not sure about that, Paul, but well, anyway, <laughs> we don't, we're not getting <laughs> political <laughs> we'll, we'll on this. No, yeah. but, we'll leave that to But that's the general thing. I remember, say, somebody like uh, controversial like Tony Benn dying and... A lot of conservatives came out and said, "What a great parliamentarian!" Yeah, yeah. And they wouldn't have said it to his face. No, they wouldn't. <laughs> well, well no, everybody's no. frags wings when they die. Yes, but, and that, um, your point is exactly. But the point, the point is that there are several mentions over his career that people liked him. Yeah. So, and he was that a landlord. I, I think he probably made a very good landlord. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, at, at the cricketers, and but in between time, he also went to work for. Um, the 1921 census has him working for Butterworth and Dickinson's, right, okay. which was um, iron works and yeah. machine cotton machine yeah. building mm-hmm. place in, in Rosegrove. Can so we, he's still um, a working man. Can we pause this? I just need to make a phone call. So that's 1920, where the benefit game is for, for good old Tommy Shutt. There's a bit of rain around, but there's a good write-up in the press for him, which can be, you can see on the, the website, which again we'll give you some uh, links to on Twitter and other social medias that you can look for to uh, so you can get the pictures of what this great conversation is about between myself, Anne and Paul. So, Paul, that's the 1920s. What what was Tommy about following the 1920 season? How did he go? He's now in his late 40s. Well, he's still putting uh, a good shift in, Jez. Okay. Uh, by 1923, he bowled over 200 overs, and right. by now he's 48 years old. Yeah. So I know that might you sweat, Jez, just yeah, thinking yeah. about doing 200 overs at that age. Yeah, yeah, but well, it did. Um, he takes 43 wickets in 1923. And then in 1924, which is his last full season at the club, he's uh, still uh, doing uh, plenty of overs, and he's the leading bowler at the club. He has 48 wickets, and he, he actually outbowls Jack Cuff, the pro, who takes 44. Okay. And even though the team is uh, last in the league, he's still uh, like a workhorse for the team. And we think it's because he's set the quest to get a 1,000 wickets. Oh, I see. I think they they were very aware at that uh, time of their stats, much more aware of more modern players before Nigel Stockley. And I'll give you an example. Brian Higgin, at some time in the 1980s, passed Herbert Lawson to become Lawhouse's leading amateur run scorer. And I asked Brian, I said, would you know what game it was when you passed him and he said to me I didn't even know what the record was and no. I didn't know now it'd be interesting to know if Blaise knew when he passed Brian because obviously Blaise has set the figures yeah. and I'm not even sure he did but we think that Tommy knew exactly um, how far short he was of the thousand and when he set the quest for a thousand we don't know uh, was he 46, 47 years old or was it when he passed 900 wickets? Again, we can't be sure. But in 1924, he's 49 years old. Yeah. 
and he takes 48 wickets yeah. and his team are in last place position and he's an amateur so you wonder yeah. if this thousand wicket quest is the one thing that's keeping him going yeah. and the highlight for him in that season um, in the 1924 Worsley Cup quarter final Lorraine had drawn at Burnley and Lorraine had a poor innings in 92 all out but they managed to bowl Burnley out for 44 and Tommy, at 49 years old, gets 5 for 18. Good lad. Incredible. Good lad. Um, um, unfortunately, the semi-final, Lawrence had drawn away to Accrington, but it's quite a close game and they lose by three wickets. So right. they could have been in the Worsley Cup yeah. final well before 1980 yeah. when they actually yeah. reached one. Yeah. And so we get to 1925 and Tommy is uh, 18 wickets short going into that season of the 1,000 wickets. And... Um, on June the 20th at Alexandra Meadows, he gets uh, 3 for 45, and it leaves him on 999, which is a good good one for a policeman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the next game is fairly quick because it's the following Tuesday. Uh, a lot of people probably don't know that until around about 1970, there were no Sunday games. All the games were on Saturday. And so you didn't have double headers. And so each team had to get a couple of midweek games in. And they tended to play them on what we used to call half-day closing half day days. Of course, yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, you, even you were old enough to remember. Yeah, I do, yeah. 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 On Tuesdays in Berlin. Tuesday in Berlin. So, yeah. so um, in that game, and it was the only Lancashire League game played on that date, Tommy got... Frank Edwards, the Aslindon Pro out for 22, and he reached the 1,000 wicket mark. And as I said, um, it was very fitting that he got the opposition pro because 31 years before, he got the church professional Tom Flowers out, and that was his very first wicket all those years before. And he did play one more game at Turf Moor um, the Saturday after that, and he never bowled. He'd no need to. He got his thousand wickets. Yeah. And he batted at number nine, and he scored nine. And Lawrence beat Burnley by 81 runs, and I think that was a excellent way to go out at 50 and, years yeah, age. Sure. And that was his last that game. Was that was his, his last, last game, game for Lawrence. Yes. Fascinating. And, uh, yeah. So a fabulous career. Fascinating. Even, yeah. even so many years on, you've still yeah. to acknowledge yeah. that he was yeah. a special cricketer when Without, you bear in mind yeah. his, his background and his circumstances yeah. Yeah. and that he was a working chap as well. And yeah. Yeah, Just so, one story I'd like to tell from yeah. going back to 1910 is about three or four years ago, Paddy got 80 odd and seven for 27. Yeah. And Harry Brooks said, said to me, that must be the best amateur performance in Lawrence history. And he actually put on the website, if anybody can think of anybody who can outdo that, uh, anybody who's outdone that in history, there's a bottle of good quality champagne on offer. Now, a lot of people think I was up by candlelight researching <laughs> this. I actually found it in five minutes. 1910, the Tom Twee Tommy got six for 23. And as I put it in, in the article that you'll be able to read on the website, it was an excellent 6 for 23. All 6 for 23 is great for the bowler, but he got four clean bowls 
and two carton bowls. Yeah. And that's a pure six for 23. No dodgy LBW yeah. decisions. <laughs> no uh, player treading on his wicket or anything like that. Or being caught, or being caught by a miracle catch. Or, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All his own work. And in that yeah. day, that day against East Lanks, he also got, as well as six for 23, 113 not out. Okay. And so I submitted this to Harry Brooks, and Harry being the gentleman that he always was, um, got me the champagne and presented it to me. And uh, it was a Moyen Chandon. Mm, and it's still at home. And <laughs> my plan with that champagne was to give it to Blaise when he passed Michael Ingham. All right. And unfortunately, <laughs> that's dragged on and it's possibly not going to happen now. In fact, it probably won't happen now. So it will go to Blaise on his retirement. Oh, that's oh, yeah. um, I thought you were going to say you've got it here with a bucket of ice. <laughs> no, no. Well, uh, Blaise might let you have a drop. <laughs> yeah. But it's certainly very good quality champagne. It's not for spraying over people. No, no, no. And no, no. probably a nice meal for him and Lindsay. Yeah. yeah, and it's a nice memory of Harry, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was a great story, that is. And, yeah. and poor Paddy will have to do it again uh, to, yeah. well, to outdo yeah. Tommy Shuck from 1920. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from 1910. 1910, yeah. sorry. Yeah, when he was at his peak. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. That's. Uh, I really enjoyed that, Paul. Thanks very much, and thanks for all the, the research and the way you've delivered this, it'll go come, you know, it'll come across really well for people who are interested in the history and who, who want to listen to stories like that. Thanks ever so much, Paul. I'll come back to you shortly right. to, to finish off. Right. Uh, Anne, is there anything you want to just talk us through? We've gone through Tommy's uh, history. Anything you want to just talk us through before we finish off? I see you've got all your laminated uh, <laughs> sheets out and the posters all ready to go. Well, this is um, going to be on the website as a slightly longer read, but we've done some timelines and a banner and we're hoping to put that up on the ground. Yeah. Um, to tie in with the fact that the club was founded mm. in August, 160 years ago. So we're tying this in. Um, so there will be some display materials, there'll be something on the website. And just to finish Tommy's life story, yeah. uh, he'd finished cricket um, and he'd only had uh, one son um, okay. who was Victor. I should mention also perhaps that uh, Tommy had several brothers who also played for Law House, including a much older half-brother, a step um, from me. Yeah, Richard Holden. Richard Holden, yeah. who was one of the main people involved in the cricket club in the very early days. Okay. And he was the uh, first Laura Simonson to score a century. He was the first right. first league set yes. The first league century. League century. Yeah. Um so there were shuts other shuts who played for Law House and there were sons of other shuts who played for yeah. Law House, but Tommy himself only had the one son, Victor, who did play some second eleven cricket, I think. But he died in 1904. It was only uh, sorry, in 1931. He was born in. Uh, sorry, yeah. Um, he was born in. Oh, 1904, yeah. Yes. And he died in uh, 1931. He was only in his twenties, um, and it was in a flu epidemic. Yeah. So he okay. probably probably died in a flu epidemic. Yeah. So Tommy only had uh, one direct descendant, who was Victor's son John. Um, when he. he finished playing cricket in uh, 1931, he and Alice uh, took over the, um, the Victoria, the, the Victoria in pub in Paddyham for right. a while, for three years. During that time, Victor, like I say, they lost their only son. Right. Um, 
they came back to Lower House. He kept up, kept up contact with Lower House uh, over the years, and they lived locally. They lived on uh, opposite where Blaise lived. No, yes, and, and, and Alice. Lane. Yeah, Alice, who he'd married in 1904, and they'd been married um, a, a long time. She died in 1939, which left him probably for the first time in his life living alone uh, on Lower House Lane. There's a, a register, the government did a register in 1939 uh, to be war ready, so they knew about who, yeah. uh, what the population was. Uh, and he's listed as being a retired machine moulder. That was his job at Butterworth and Dickinson's. Mm. And he, um, then we don't know quite how he spent the war years. I imagine that because he was a single person, he probably went to live with extended family so that mm. his rations would go. It would make sense to be in mm. a family situation. Because he but, would have been about 64-ish then? Uh, yes, yeah. well, he'd be older than that. He was born in... Yeah, about... Uh, yeah, about 64, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, the, next, the, thing, the next thing that the records show about him was that in April 1946, when he was 71, he married the landlady of the White Horse in Paddyham. Right, okay. And that was then his home until he died in uh, 1952, age 76. 76. And he's buried in Habergham Churchyard. He was buried with Alice, uh, his first wife. Um, The grave's a little bit sad and neglected now. The gravestone's uh, quite legible and it, it has his his parents' names and his wife Alice. It also has uh, the names of some children that um, his parents lost in infancy, which unfortunately not Tommy's name itself. Um, But Tommy's name itself was never added to the grave. I know Paul's quite motivated about this. He does he does think it should have been, but time I don't know life moves on doesn't it I think if you don't do something like that at the time possibly yeah, yeah. yeah and it would have been either down to his son yeah. or his, his grandson or his, or his, or his widow or his extended yeah. family and anyway yeah. it never happened yeah. so and he spends the rest uh, the uh, late part of his life at the White Horse in Paddyham the it? last six yeah. years uh, assisting the well he gets married to the landlady yeah, yeah. yeah. who's been widowed during the second yeah, yeah I mean war. she is she is the landlady she has spent yeah. a lifetime yeah. in, yeah. in the yeah. license yeah. trade yeah um uh, yes, so but it's a job he knows obviously he, because he's done it yes, at the cricketers. He's done it the cricketers and the Victoria, yeah. and mm. and possibly was working there as well. We don't know. Yeah. So that was, brilliant. That was brilliant. It, really. That is uh, that is so interesting. You two. Um, before we 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 mop up, uh, I'm sure that I know Anne. You want to make a mention for you know for the the help you've had of various people and you know the the Persia cricket. Oh yes, particularly. I mean, yes, he was so helpful. He was. He's written a lot about that. It's chap called Richard Miller who sparked all this off. Yeah. He was very helpful. He gave me a lot of advice about how to put it together, and uh, he's done a lot of research himself on old, early cricket in in Persia, and he's published quite a lot of stuff. Um, and obviously, um. You've given credit to Nigel Stockley. The the website there is a fantastic yeah, resource. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, I think Paul wants to just mention Tommy's legacy, perhaps. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Cricketing. Well, legacy. Uh, yeah, obviously we talked about the thousand wickets. Yeah. 
uh, which is uh, just over 400 clear of yourself, Jess. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, you you did great, like for. Uh, I mean, Tommy started at 18 as a boy. Yeah, yeah, you, you, I was a lot later. You were were like sort of a manufactured boy, yeah, if you don't right. mind me saying so. Yeah. Uh, who filled a, a void and did it brilliantly yeah. for yeah. Morehouse and. And, and work just as hard as Tommy at yeah. the bowling. Uh, Tommy has the two best individual seasons in club history, um, with uh, 76 and 74 wickets respectively. The only two that we found over 70 are that Billy Whitaker in 1916 with 71, and Jim Minnes, yeah. uh, who was later a pro for Lawrence, and he got, in the mid-1950s, he got 72 wickets. Uh, so he, he got five wickets for Lawrence. Uh, 69 times, which is a, a really good achievement, mm. and uh, over 500 wickets as a pro uh, on uh, other grounds. And also the batting side of his game, when he retired, he was only 24 short of the record for Lawrence. He got 4,687 4, runs for Lawrence, as well as his great bowling achievements. Mm. And I think the batting side of his game is the one that interests me more than his bowling, because he was always very consistent as a bowler. He took wickets wherever mm. he went. Mm. He was always there to put a shift in. Mm. He had decent fitness. You know, he didn't have many seasons where he missed games to yeah. injury. Yeah. But the the batting side of his game is very interesting. He only averaged 14, but he got six Lancashire League centuries, and. Um, one stat I liked, uh, I don't mm. even liked it quite as much, <laughs> is at Burnley, he has the third highest ever score, 164, by an amateur, or a pro, yeah. for Burnley. And at Lawrence, he has 173 not out, which is the second highest by pro or amateur. Yeah. So I put the stat together that there's, I, I think, about 55,000 innings by Lawrence and Burnley players combined in mm. Lancashire League history. Okay. And Tommy Shutt has two of the best five scores. Yeah. And he wasn't even primarily yeah, a batter. Yeah. He was a bowler who batted. Yeah. You know, yeah, which I think is an yeah. Yeah. A, a, yeah. a great stat. That's, like really. yeah, that's um, a good stat, isn't it? It is, yeah, to be up there. Just the legacy, uh, Tommy's legacy, I think, has been neglected a little bit at the club. And not only Tommy... That side from 1906 to 1911 was a very good team, mm. and that's partly why I put um, obviously you've seen it the Hall of Fame list. Mm. And there's a lot of players from that era on, and that's their only legacy at the club. Yeah, there's nothing else that stands out. And I'd like some kind of artifact or mural, as Anna said, to acknowledge what they yeah. did for the club because. Yeah. In that era, in the whole 20th century, they put together the most consistent mm. six years yeah. in Lawrence's history. Yeah. And it's only in the current century mm. that we've outdone yeah. that. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it would be nice yeah, if would. there was something to remember yeah, about, yeah. not just the Hall of Fame list, but um, at least that's something mm. because it's brought names that a lot of people at Lawrence mm. didn't really um, know about. Yeah. No, that's interesting, Paul. Yeah, and it is something I'm sure that uh, that Matt Stanley will look at, and I'm sure you'd help him with it, you know, yeah, to get something yeah. together. That uh, that is uh, really interesting. So we've uh, we've had a fantastic chat there for an hour or so. It's, I've really enjoyed it. What a great story it is there. Um, and is there anything you want to add before we finish up? 
Yeah, I'd just like to uh, give a shout out to another pro little project we've got okay. going. Um, this is all tying in with the club being 160 years old yeah. this August. And together with uh, your Adam, yeah. uh, we're doing a walking time, a virtual walking time around oh, the ground. Right. Now, I don't quite understand how this works, but Adam's doing QR codes, a QR code for each of the four sides of the ground. Yeah. And if you scan the QR code, it will take you to some photos on the website, which date mostly between 1950s and 1980s. Yeah. So you can see what that particular wow. part of the ground looked like yeah. in yeah. days gone by, which yeah. will be a bit of an eye opener yeah. to some people because sometimes it looks so dilapidated. Really, 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 really. Yeah, and of course it's always raining. Of course, yeah, yeah it's always dark. <laughs> so, that's that's just another little yeah, project that we've really got going. So I think that might be a bit of a first. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I've not heard it before, certainly. So. Anyway, never mind the Lancashire League. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll have a look at that. So really enjoyed that, Anne. Thanks ever so much. And Paul, thanks very much for putting uh, putting all this together and, and talking us through. I, I've enjoyed going through that life of Tommy Shutt. I didn't know 95% of that. So listeners, have a look online. Look at these stats. Look at the photographs that we've uh, we've discussed. You will you will enjoy it, I'm sure, when you look at uh, on the uh, on the website. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the Housecast, then you'll get the episodes before anyone else. Thanks everyone for listening, and uh, goodbye.